Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Today our guest is Deborah Nadulman Landis, an Academy Award nominated costume designer who's also an author and professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. Deborah is known in her field not only for the iconic looks she's created that are part of pop culture today, but she has spent decades chronicling the history of costume design unlike anyone else, giving her profession the type of respect in a way that Hollywood itself never did until she came along. Deborah, welcome to the show. <laughs> and, and it's still hard for me to take credit for all of that. Well, I think you should take credit because it's the absolute truth. And the 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 truth, the, the real truth is, is that you have so many more titles than this. You were you were, I think, a two-term president of the costume uh guild society. Yeah, right. And so there's so many more that I could add. So uh I'm I'm being conservative here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show. First of all, I wanted to give our readers some context and clear up a few definitions. Tell me what a costume designer does and how is that different from a fashion designer? Can one be both? That's really the key question for the audience because I've really heard that term fashion in film. But we we don't do fashion because sometimes the best costumes are really ugly. Uh, I mean, I want you to think about the two Oscar performance wins. I want you to think about everything everywhere. I want you to think about Jamie Lee Curtis, how Jamie Lee Curtis looked in, in everywhere all at once. Not so good. Not her most glamorous moment. And Michelle Yeoh, a beautiful woman, looking so glamorous as a, a laundrette owner. So I, I want you to think about those wonderful performances. So, so different fashion and costume design. Fashion designers have a dream and their dream involves um, thinking about what you and I want to wear next year. They build their brands. They build their licenses. We have to know their name. Christian Dior, Coco Chanel, Michael Kors. But if you, I asked you who the costume designer of Indiana Jones was, could you spell my name? Well, could people would people even know your no, name? Only my parents knew Deborah Nadulman at that moment, the mother of. And so I I have to say that it's a completely different pursuit. Yes, it both has to do with clothing, right? And identity, who you are, who are you wearing? right? But we're, we serve two different masters. Costume designers, really, we sign up to be invisible. That's, that's the job, to be backstage, to help that performance. We partner with performance. We partner with directors. We are selling the story. And if the audience falls in love with the movie and the characters in the movie, we have done our job. The reason why I have worked so hard for advocacy, because in a job that is defined by its invisibility, how do you promote the field? How do you promote the women, mostly, who have created these cultural icons and international popular culture? Well, I hope that today during our conversation that that we can 
explain to our listeners, you know, that we bring you to the forefront and that, uh, uh, and that people learn who Deborah Nadulman is and the work <laughs> that you've done. And also the work that you've done for other costume designers through the books that you've authored as well. So a question I have for you is that some people are born with certain talents, others have to acquire them. So you might be born with a beautiful voice, it's effortless, you're like a songbird. Others have to go to school and study and really tap into that. For you, what what was it? Is is it something you're born with? You did, did you know that you were going to be a costume designer when you were born? Were there signs, Deborah? Well, there were signs, and uh, yes, and I was born this way. I was definitely, definitely born this way. It's everything I'm passionate about in one job, and I I think that uh, your listeners will either be these people or know about these people or it, this will resonate. So I always loved history. I thought maybe I would be a, a history teacher because for me, history, I was a real buff. I still am. I, I saw people walking around in costume. You know, I, when I would, in my history classes, I actually, there was no separation. I found myself, I'm a link in the chain. So I, I, I loved history. I loved reading. I loved literature. And I was crazy about the theater. And I grew up in Manhattan. And from the time I was in high school, I used to stand up in the back of the house in the Broadway theaters. So I'm also not bad with my hands, so I can make everything badly. Please don't give me a placemat and a, and, a, and a napkin. I love placemats and I love napkins because I love to make things out of them whatever it is. So my kids think it's hysterical when I take a placemat and I make a collar out of it and I became an, and then I put a nun's habit on, I create a napkin and I make a nun's habit. So I'm a, I'm kind of a maker. So I can't take you to a restaurant because you're just going to rearrange, you're going to take the tablecloth, you're going to take everything there. And I can do anything. I'm like the best person to have in your camp cabin. I love to make things. So I have been painting and drawing since I was a little girl. I'm a maker. I'm a terrible seamstress, even though I learned on my grandmother's lap and my and her sewing machine is in my office. So I I can make everything badly, but I'm I'm natively a designer and I was born this way. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, we talked about how costume designers influence pop culture. And so you you look at Michelle Yeoh's as the laundrette in everything, all, everywhere, all at once, and, yes. and all the unglamorous looks and stuff like that. Um, you know, I... I guess uh, a barometer of a of an indelible costume designer would be um, how that Halloween all the kids want to be that character. This Halloween Wednesday Adams is going to be probably the outfit that everyone's going to wear. Some of the some of the notable things, and we'll go into greater detail, is like the Michael Jackson's red leather jacket in Thriller. Like when right. kids wore that to his concert, that was what they associated him with. That was something you deliberately put on Michael Jackson for the Thriller video. Um, so let's talk about some of the earlier 
years for you. You, a lot of your costume career was done in partnership with your husband, John Landis, beginning in the late seventies, you guys started together on Kentucky Fried Movie. And during that time, you also worked on Steven Spielberg's 1941. You worked, you were there at the birth of the careers of your husband, Steven Spielberg, John Belushi, the Blues Brothers, you worked on that. That was such a special time in Hollywood history. That's the time period that books are written about. <laughs> you had not only a front row seat to all these careers being birthed, including your own, but you were also on the front lines birthing those careers. Did you know at that time that this was something that was going to be historical by nature? Or was it more about just living in the moment, having fun, working with your husband, working with amazingly funny, talented people? Uh, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know. We were all very young. Uh, remember that I designed, I designed Animal House when I was 26 and Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was 27. So, and Steve Spielberg, I was his first costume designer. He had he never had had a costume designer before because on Close Encounters and on Jaws, he had simply had costumers who uh, coordinated the clothes. He'd never hired a costume designer before 1941 when I uh, collaborated with him. So we didn't know. We, we, we didn't know. And you never know. You never know whether you're working on a, a, a hit or a flop. You never know whether you're working on, on a film that will be um, critically acclaimed or critically panned and then found again by fans, right? Later, like The Three Amigos came out in 1987. Nobody really cared at the time. And now it's kind of a cult favorite and people have found it. So- so you never know. And that that's that's what everybody in the movie business, nobody ever knows. And I certainly didn't know then. But the movie for me, that was the biggest surprise. And I don't know if this answers your question directly. But when I designed Coming to America in 1988, I knew it was funny when I was designing it. It came out, it was a huge hit. But what I couldn't have told you was how it has resonated and for the past 30 years and been constantly on television and that it has been so embraced by the African-American community that I couldn't have foreseen. It's also the film that, that nominated you for an Academy Award. Which was extraordinary because comedies are never nominated. And that was kind of a, a first for a comedy, right? The films that you work on, a lot of them still resonate years later. So Coming to America is a perfect example. I mean, during the pandemic, they did a sequel all because those characters were so beloved. And you helped create those characters through the clothes that they wore. The Blues Brothers, another example. There have been sequels to that. There are animated shows. There's so many that that's a big pop culture uh, thing that is still to this day valid. And worldwide. 
I mean, let's Indiana Jones is going to be a whole conversation, but like, <laughs> but, but I mean, we have a, a, like a fifth or a sixth movie coming out this summer, uh, still going back to the, the original that you were a part of even, um, animal house, I animal house was a one-off, but speaking of Halloween costumes, anyone who wears a college who, a, a sweatshirt with my idea, right. Toga, Toga's bed sheets. Your, 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 your camp counselors. Yes. Bed sheet. Yes. Don't put me in a bedroom. Don't give me a bed sheet. I will make a Toga. Yeah. Bed sheets. I can do anything with a bath towel. So like, th this is why uh, you are such, you are a leader because somehow you were born with this innate sense, not only that you created these characters, but they have lasted. Thriller keeps playing every Halloween till the end of time it will. He's a genius. Right? He is a genius. So not a genius wearing the costume. It's not, it's not hard, right? Everybody wants to see Michael. It's always fresh. He's always new. You're always astounded. No one ever was better. And no one's better now. People are... As good, he has peers in his pantheon of uh, musical geniuses. But uh, I mean, it, it is Michael Jackson. So, but you are the secret, invisible ingredient that I want to make visible today. So let's talk about Animal House for a second, because uh, because that was at the time it changed the way people looked at college and beer parties and keggers and and frat houses and everyone wanted that experience how did you approach this film in putting the lovable lug in a college sweatshirt where it said, literally says college the guy who's failed college over and over and over and is still in college tell me the the thinking behind that every movie the tone is set by the film director so um, my husband, who was not yet my husband then, John Landis, never went to college. He, uh, he dropped out in the 10th grade. And the way the original screenplay was written, it was quite gross. It was kind of a gross out movie. And, uh, and John didn't want that. That was not his vision. And we had very little time and very little money. Isn't that the usual, though, even today? That's still. Yes, yes, yes. But, uh, you know, we I mean, I can tell you that for Animal House, Animal House cost two million dollars in 1977, 78, two million dollars. The costume budget, I remember very well, was fifty thousand dollars for everything, $50,000. And I had to make those 1960s prom dress type things, which I made at a quinceanera store downtown Los Angeles. And they made them very, very nicely. And we used a lot of uh, hairspray. And I had a little money for those guys, for the group of guys. But, but the direction from John was, they're so likable. They're so lovable, all of them, from uh, Tim Matheson's Otter to Peter Riegert's uh, young guy. And they've got to be lovable. They have to be attractive. They have to be lovable. Everybody in the audience has to want to be them. And everyone has to fall in love with John Belushi. And that was not hard because John Belushi was extremely lovable, right? But instead of a gross out picture, 
John made a movie about the good guys and the bad guys, the deltas and the omegas. And many people had that college experience. So I, I was in downtown Eugene, Oregon. And in those days, there were press on t-shirt shops, right? So you went in and, and you had the letters pressed on, no digital, nothing in those days. And I had college pressed onto this t-shirt or the sweatshirt. And I came home to the roadway in, in Eugene, Oregon. And I showed it to John Landis. And I said, do you think this is funny? He said, absolutely. Let's put it on Belushi. And that's, that's just how it, how it was created. And you can imagine my shock and awe when my son, Max, went to the University of Miami and I went into the college store and there it was <laughs> for everybody on every campus, college. So yeah, it became, who knew? I had no idea, clueless. And and see, again, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation where we say, like, you don't get that credit. You don't get those residuals to this day, <laughs> right? You, I imagine. I own nothing. Own nothing. Right. Yeah. But that was that was such a huge contribution to pop culture because you can just go on Amazon and Google Jim Belushi college sweatshirt and you it'll come up. It's on Etsy. It's on eBay. It's everywhere. It's true. But we did not know then. We did not know then. And no and I, I can't say this enough times because the general audience must know that when you make a movie you have no idea how the audience will react. To be in the film business, to be in the television business, you have to be a, some kind of crazy optimist who's a believer, a passionate believer who has hope that their work, and we work the same way with the same kind of effort, 110% on every single production. Mm. So if it comes together perfectly, if it becomes The Wizard of Oz, if it becomes Animal House, if it becomes Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's magic. Yeah. Yeah. So after that film, the other one that is hugely relevant to this day is the Blues Brothers. Mm -hmm. Now, most people don't know because this was you know, late seventies, that the Blues Brothers was actually, you know, it was based on a Saturday Night Live skit. But at that point, Saturday Night Live had only been on the air for five years. It was still a very new show. And this was the first skit that became a feature film. Today, Saturday Night Live, you know, anything that works becomes a feature film, right? Um, and Lorne Michaels is involved. In this case, Lorne Michaels was not even involved. So, uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd on Saturday Night Live, they had somewhat of a look for, for uh, the Blues Brothers. But you, you did something. You somehow cemented their look for the feature film that became their trademark. Not only their trademark, but also became a bit of a trademark for your work because you introduced a concept of silhouette that, that really wasn't something that was... Uh, that existed before, or maybe it did, but it didn't have a word. So tell me a little bit about how you came up with the Blues Brothers look for the film. And at what point does your work step in uh, when there's a pre-existing look that's already popular on SNL? I, I think that's such a, it's such an interesting question. And you know, it's only something we can talk about in retrospect, mm. right? 
because did I know that I was doing it at the time somewhat? Again, it, again, some of the direction came from the director, came from John Landis. He said, look, uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd are going to go through car chases. They're going to be going underwater. They're going to be shot at. They're going to be in a collapsing building. He said, I never want them to be dirty. Right? Uh, they are slobs, and I never want them to be dirty. Again, his this is his point of view. Yeah. Now, on the Saturday Night Live, John and Danny took any fedora, any black fedora, any set of sunglasses, any white shirt, any jacket, any black pants. So every week it was different. Every week it was a different, yeah. Whatever they, yeah. whatever they threw on. Yeah. For the film, I made them suits. I made them 10 suits each. And I wanted them to look, they were never going to look great. I mean, I, it's not as if I'm going to put John Belushi on and so, suddenly he, John, something on John Belushi and suddenly he's going to look like some kind of Cary Grant. <laughs> <laughs> he's not going to be Brad Pitt, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I was safe there. So with John, I, I gave him a two-button suit to look good, and I made those hats, and the brims were right. I made them at Dobbs in Ohio. I made 10 hats. I think the story is very, very famous that I, I looked for Ray-Bans all over every city to get enough Ray-Bans because they were not making Wayfarers anymore. And so instead of just wearing any sunglasses, I decided they should wear Ray-Bans. So Ray-Ban uh, Wayfarers. So after, after they were together, they looked like a match set. So in a way that they hadn't before, they looked like salt and pepper. They looked like Laurel and Hardy. You could see them in their silhouette. Yes. If you, if someone shows me a shadow, the shadow on the, that they would say the blues brothers and yeah. that's the blues brothers. And of course the same thing was, became true with Indiana Jones and yeah. Steve did use it in the following film where you saw his entrance was you saw his silhouette on the ground, his yeah. shadow on the ground. Yeah. So a silhouette, very powerful thing. Wearing a hat makes you much more powerful and much more recognizable in the distance. And I have to say that, I have to say that the direction comes from the film's director. That tone is set. I want them to look good. I want them to look clean. I never want them to look shabby. And I followed that lead. Yeah, it, it's true. It's like, uh, I, I I remember when I was watching the A-Team as a kid, they would shoot everywhere all the time and people would shoot at them, but no one ever died and there was never any blood. <laughs> it was like, but there was a shootout from beginning to end of the show, but just never dead bodies, no blood. It was like every everyone who's supposedly an expert in their field as shooters never actually shot anyone. They were actually the worst in their field <laughs> on the A-Team series. So this is, this is sort of, this reminds me of that because, you know, they're the biggest slobs yet not a crumb on their outfits. <laughs> yeah. I I I got I got it, but that's that's a that's a tone that's set. So um when you're talking about Wednesday Adams also I, I have to say that that series was designed by Colleen Atwood 
And in terms of um, Halloween costumes, you made a great point. The Blues Brothers was the Halloween costume for men for, I mean, decades, right? And it still is. You just, you grab your buddy and you say, which one do you want? I'll be one, you be the other. Because yeah. it's so easy. Wednesday yeah. Adams is going to be the same thing. Black with a white collar, get those black braids going yeah. and you're there. So how is our design how can our design be reduced to a couple of important recognizable elements? Mm. That is great design. When you can reduce, when you can say anybody can be this at home. Well, when I think of your film that you designed Three Amigos, it's the cummerbunds and the, <laughs> and the hats. Again, the hats, you put them in these hats, right? Ridiculous, I mean, sombreros. Yes. Get a sombrero, right? They're so ridiculous, those guys. I love that movie so much. But that's like another, that's recognizable things that just go down in history and go down into the Hollywood costume, like the costume, uh, you know, Halloween costume. Uh, Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame. Hollywood Halloween Hall of Fame. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, speaking of silhouette, the best example of your silhouette work is the red leather jacket on Michael Jackson's uh, thriller video, which was actually more like a movie. And it's not just the silhouette of that, it was also the color. So what? why not just put Michael Jackson in a black leather jacket? Because that's what most likely someone like him would be wearing outside on the street. Uh, you would not wear a red jacket with wide shoulders. I mean, that was a very strategic and I, I want to know how your brain worked on something like that. Cause this is, this is Deborah Nadulman at her finest right there. I know, <laughs> I know I'm getting in the brain here. Well, you're absolutely right. It's, it's not just me. It's, it's costume design and how we, how we reverse engineer our design. So we start with the screenplay. I didn't start with Michael Jackson. So what's the story? What's the story? And then where does the story take place? Oh, it's going to be at night. It's going to be in a dark movie theater with a, 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 a big group of people. What are they watching? Oh, they're watching a teenage vampire movie. Okay. And then what happens? Then they leave the movie theater. Where are they? Oh, they're in a dark alley. And then what happens? They walk down a dark street with a lot of fog. Then the costume designer, or that would be me, would say, how am I going to see Michael Jackson in the dark on a dark, foggy street in a black leather jacket? This is not happening. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't, I don't think I'm going to be choosing a black leather jacket to find my hero. No way. And then, and then design is reductive. Hey, could it be a white leather jacket? Um, I don't think so. Could it be a yellow, orange Blue, green, what makes sense here? Oh, thriller. It's got to be red. And and what's he going to wear on the bottom? I have Michael Jackson. Maybe if he stands up really straight, he's 5'7". Maybe. Let's put him in some red jeans to make him, to lengthen him and verticalize him and make him look really long. Michael Jackson, do you think he's 99 pounds wet? That, how am I going to give him some body, some virility, some shoulders? 
It's the 80s. Let's build out those shoulders. When I look at that jacket now, I can only think of Marvel. I, I mean, he looks to me like he belongs in, like he's Wolverine, like he's in a superhero movie. Because, because with that V pushing out those shoulders, and that's what I was trying to create. I was trying to create a body. I was trying to create length. I was doing, I was, I was filling boxes of the criteria that costume designers have to think about, mm-hmm. making him as attractive as possible and giving that brilliant man everything he needed for that performance. So I I was, I hate to say it, but I was just doing my job. But does someone like Michael Jackson at the time, does he accept your vision? Does he challenge it? Does he want something else? Does he understand what you're doing? Does he, do you explain to him the method of the madness? I, I don't think he needed any of those things. If Michael hadn't liked it, I would have heard about it. I I am not a big zipper, buckle, silver kind of person. I wanted it kind of stripped down. It didn't have a lot on it, right? It was an extremely simple design, right? I mean, when you look at the jacket, it's it has that, I mean, it's really telling you where to look. It's a V. It's and, a silhouette. Again, yeah. you see a, just an outline shadow of that, you know that's Michael Jackson in Thriller. Abs- absolutely. It created a body. It created something for him to dance in. I I met with him twice about the jacket. Um, the first time I showed him the sketch, it was in the middle of the night. He was recording uh, a record. So I had to go, I had a little child at the time, a baby. And I went at one o'clock in the morning when he was recording, they woke me up in the receptionist's office. I was sleeping on the sofa. Mr. Jackson will see you now, or Michael will see you now. I went in, I showed him the drawings. He had no questions. And he was, he really was a perfectionist and um, he loved it. And that was it. Do you still have those drawings? I mean, no, no? because I never thought that anything was valuable. <sighs> so they're, they are gone. Wow. No, they are gone. It's, it's interesting because I have some, I, I have other drawings and certainly the drawings for, we were talking about coming to America, the drawings for coming, all 26 sketches, original sketches from coming to America are now in the museum of African history and uh, African American history and culture in Washington. And are they your sketches, things you've sketched out? Yes, they are. They are the sketches and they're all safe now at the Smithsonian. So, uh, but those Michael Jackson drawings, no, they're, oh. they're not there, but the, but the, the jacket was uh, designed. Um, I designed and, and manufactured that jacket for Michael. We only made two. We made one, which was the hero jacket, and we went made one, which is the zombie jacket. And the the here the zombie jacket is at the Museum of um, of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Deservedly so, deservedly so, yeah. And, and the other one was sold years ago for a, a million and a half, and and again, you get no, you don't get. <laughs> You didn't yeah. get that million and a half. Oh, kiss. It I doesn't. It doesn't say Deborah Nadulman inside <laughs> the 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 no label. label. Oh, 
No, in fact, it has the label of the leather shop that manufactured it. It doesn't have my label. It's a travesty. It's, I mean, I mean, I know we're, we're laughing about this, but honestly, it's, if, like you said, if it was a fashion designer, that. Whole different story. Whole different story. Exactly. Right? Yep. Yep. Well, getting back to silhouettes and, and putting hats on like the Belushi's or the sombreros for the three amigos, the greatest hat of all in the history of hats in films has <laughs> got to be the fedora hat worn by Indiana Jones, but it's not just the hat. There's, there's the, the jacket, which inexplicably to me was always zipped up. I'm like, when was the last time anyone zips up a leather jacket? It's always open. Um, so I know now that I know you, Deborah, there is lots of method to your madness. And there was a reason you did that. And I would like to know why you chose that look, topping it off with that fedora. Well, um, uh, Steve Spielberg had um, decided that he was going to make this adventure movie and he and George Lucas had discussed it and they had an archetype in mind and the archetype was this 1940s adventurer. And this look had been well established in the movies before I got there. And um, it was in two Charlton Heston films. Oh, yeah. Lost, lost Treasure of the uh, Incas, right? Pretty much Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, if listeners can find Lost Treasure of the Incas, also a Paramount film, they should watch it because they're, they're going to be very surprised at how similar they are. So Charlton Heston really wears this complete costume. It's a little bit different, right? Um, but so Steve had this in mind. And remember that we were close friends at the time. And he came to visit me while I was designing the Blues Brothers. Mm. He came to Chicago so that we could discuss the way forward for Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that happens with close collaborations with all designers we know ahead of time, right? So I got to, um, I came back from Chicago, uh, from Chicago and they had cast, and this is all now, it's the stuff of Hollywood legend. Mm -hmm. They had cast Tom Selleck as Indiana Jones. And Tom Selleck is about 6'6". Six, six and uh, quite gorgeous. He was then, I'm assuming he's still gorgeous. Uh, yeah. And um, he was really kind of like the secretary's delight and mine as well. <laughs> um, and so he, I, I made leather jacket prototype for Tom and, uh, and trousers and shoes and, and a hat and uh, kind of looked at Tom and then Tom dropped out, right? To do Magnum PI because he had a contract with ABC. So he left and we had no indie. And there was a lot of panic and this is all chronicled, um, but I was there. So I am a witness. Oh yes. I want that. I want that insider scoop, Deborah. George said, Han Solo owes me a movie. And we sort of said, Han Solo who? He said, you know, this Han Solo. And so Han Solo came in. We were really disappointed. <laughs> Why? 
because look at Harrison. I mean, look at him on the Academy Awards. That's who he is. He's <laughs> a grumpy old man. He's, he was a grumpy young man, right? So he shuffles in after Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck was like, I'm telling you, Tom Selleck was like Jack Reacher. He was like, like at the hunk of all time. So you go from secretary's delight to grumpy old man. <laughs> we were, he was a grumpy young man. And we were like, really, really? And then I was out of time. So we all flew to London and, and I started again with Harrison and it was interesting. I, in a very platonic way, of course, I fell madly in love with him who couldn't um, and he with me. And we developed this costume together because it, again, it seems so obvious in hindsight. But reading the script, it really, it really was very obvious that he would be wearing this costume for months. He would wear it in every scene. He would sleep in it. He would eat in it. It had to be like a second skin, right? And it had to look like it was always his second skin, like he was born wearing it. And, and how do you make something new that looks from the first shot like someone was born wearing it? This is a kind of uh, artistry. It's not the Blues Brothers who can't, with, with no, not a single speck of that's right. allowed. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So that's exactly right. So um, this jacket was zipped and I created, but he had to use the whip. So Harrison, who has very broad shoulders, was a carpenter really until he was about 30, um, had to be able to move his arm back and use this whip. So it, it really has hidden these huge hidden shoulder panels so that when the jacket is zipped and tied at the waist, he has full range of motion with his arms right? So it's really very much what we call it like a bespoke jacket. It was created for him to have these deep panels in the back. But why did it have to be zipped? Why, why wouldn't you just unzip it? It's cleaner because it's cleaner. That goes because back to silhouette, right? Cleaner, cleaner. He's got to jump off the back of a truck. He's got to roll under the truck. He's got a, he's got 15 stuntmen. We've got two, we've got two other um, uh, unit shooting in the desert, right? We've got a, a, a unit uh, A and a unit B, and then we have the principal unit shooting. We've got stuntmen and doubles everywhere. Everybody's got to be wearing this jacket. We keep the jacket zipped so that it's not opening on the right side, opening on the left side in these other units. So this is all very practical considerations for shooting that the public knows nothing about. So you can imagine if you keep it half zipped, all of these um, problems, these problems in the editing room later, nine months later, disappear. And so with the hat as well. I mean, I didn't find a hat for Harrison. What? And, and again, I've talked about this for many, many years. And it's wonderful because when I interviewed Penny Rose about Johnny Depp's hats for Pirates of the Caribbean, she told me a story that I had been telling for years. So, I mean, she said to me, I, how did you find the hat for Johnny Depp? 
Well, I was at Berman's and Nathan's Costumers, and I dumped out all of the hats, 18th century pirates hats. And we kept trying on, trying on, trying on. We found one that was kind of okay, and then we made it. Well, what did I do? I, Harrison and I were at Berman's and Nathan's. We dumped out every fedora in the hundreds of 1940s fedoras. Some, the, the brim was too long, the, the crown was too high. We got one, I measured it, measured it, measured it, and then I had one custom made for him. And and it didn't exist before. We didn't go to a shop and say, oh, that's the one. We It was made for Harrison. So what were the things you had to take into consideration? Did it need a specific brim? Did it need a specific height? Always, always just like making a wedding dress. I mean, that's the closest that real people, some real people, the privilege get to make their wedding dress. Yeah, do you? Yes, it, it, Harrison has a long and narrow face. So I wanted him, you know, I love to see him because I hold his face in my hands. You know, I... I I wanted the brim to be short enough so that the, when the cameraman was lighting, they could get light into his eyes mm. without him tipping his hat back. I didn't want the crown to be too high. I wanted it to be uh, short enough and soft enough that it looked like it could hold a bird's nest, right? Yeah. That he was going to sit on it, that he could conceivably roll it and put it in his back pocket, Right. So we had a one of one hat. And when I was curating the Hollywood costume exhibition in 2012 at the Victoria and Albert Museum, I flew up to Lucasfilm to look for the number one jacket and the number one hat. And when I arrived, the Lucasfilm archivist, um, Layla French, who I dearly love, said, Deborah, we have hundreds of jackets and hundreds of hats at this point. We have no idea which is the number one. And so all afternoon, I dumped out all the hats and looked through all the jackets. And I was the only one who identified the one of one, the one of one hat and the one of one jacket. A mother always knows her baby. That's it. It was the one of one because I used brass, a brass zipper on that jacket and a special D-ring on the jacket on the side. And the hat did not say Indiana Jones because guess what? We didn't know that there would ever be another movie. We didn't know that he would be Indiana Jones. We just thought we're making a movie. 40 years later, they're still, it's still happening. So now, so now they have that one of one and you can bet they don't go anywhere. They're just at Lucasfilm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of things being on display, uh, at museums, uh, and also touching on the sketches you have authored and edited or edited six books about costume design, including Hollywood costume, Dressed a Century of Hollywood Costume Design, Hollywood Sketchbook. So you are, in a way, not just a costume designer and also a professor at UCLA, but you're, an, you're a historian. You are an 
archivist in a way as well, because you are preserving these things in order to hold it up to other people and say, this is what this profession is about. So tell me a little bit about uh, why you decided to start authoring these books. I mean, you're one of the first that began chronicling the history of costume. It's like if somebody wants to know what, what, you know, if an alien planet or if an alien <laughs> landed here on this earth to learn about costume design, they'd be like, where's Deborah Nadulman? <laughs> Let me beam her up and talk to but what her. Are they, what are they wearing? <laughs> you would, you would design something out of whatever tools they had there. You'd be like, you guys have a bed sheet here. Yeah, I love, <laughs> I, I love aliens. Um, Yes. Well, remember when we started about a half hour ago, I I talked about my first love, history. And um, if you don't write it down, if you don't talk about it on a podcast, on some somewhere that somewhere that puts it out there into the universe, um, it disappears. There, there, there is no, there is no. Uh, story of costume design yeah. and there is very little uh, around about costume design even with my books when i was getting my doctorate uh, so i i'm 70 years old and i got my doctorate at 50 wow. from the royal college of art when i started at 45 my advisor um uh, my advisor was a film historian and I complained to him that there were no, no books on the shelf. Where was I going to go for information for my doctorate? And I said, there are no books. He said, write them. I said, the shelf is empty. He said, fill it. And he was such an inspiration to me because I, I knew that I I knew that there was more for me to do than design. I knew that I had the capacity. I had the, I had the will and I had this passion for history that I, I felt that I wanted to raise up, raise up my field. And but so you were already a legend at 45. Like, why would you even want to go to school and get like degrees and stuff? Because you don't need that. People, people do that so that they can have the career that you had between, you know, the age of 20 and 45. Like, <laughs> it's like you're, you're reverse engineering yourself here. I know. Thank you for that. Well, I, I felt that I needed to do more. You know, I, my mother used to say, oh, it's nice that you were nominated for an Oscar, but too bad you didn't win. Well, my mother was actually there when I got my PhD and she was so happy, two doctors, no waiting, right? So <laughs> I, I just felt like, you know, we talked about, you, you asked me before, how, how did this come about? Was I born this way? Clearly, I have a passion for my field. And I felt like I was called to do this. I know it sounds schmaltzy, but I felt like there was a void. If I wrote books about designers, if I wrote books about my colleagues, it would be from a practitioner's perspective. I am a practitioner. I have done the job, right? Yeah. That is different from that than someone from the Hollywood reporter or journalist from from Vanity Fair or a journalist from variety God bless them 
talking to one of my colleagues. I, I feel like I can do it. And right now, I am engaged in a five-year project where I am the editor-in-chief of the Bloomsbury Encyclopedia for Film and Television Costume Design. Wow. What, what is that, though? Like, that sounds amazing, but what is it exactly? you know, I can modestly say it's a landmark. It's a landmark. It's a kind of, it's the first, it's global. It's a million words. It's three volumes. I have 250 authors who are working on volume one, volume two, and volume three. Volume one is, um, talks about global design. So I'm talking about the costume designers of Mexican telenovelas. I'm talking about costume designers who are working in Bollywood, costume designers who are designing for Nollywood, which is Nigerian film, costume designers in China, costume designers worldwide working and collaborating in every single language. Second volume. Second volume is a A to Z listing of a dictionary of designers' names and short bios. Third volume, your favorite movies told through essays about the costume design in those in those films, right? Wow. And and the best thing is it's all gonna be online starting in June. Wow. June of 2023. Exactly. That's incredible. I hope you've written a number of essays. Because as we talked about, the, the, the stories of the films that you worked on are so relevant today. They were not one-offs. They, they're still, we're talking Blues Brothers or Indiana Jones, Michael Jackson's Thriller. I mean, there's so many more. So I, I please tell me that you are in this as <laughs> yes. well. You're not just the editor-in-chief of that. No, no, I'm not just the editor-in-chief. I've written... The the beginning, the introduction. If anybody wants to to have the context about costume design worldwide set, my introduction is there for you to read. So do you miss working on a set, on a movie set? Do you still feel like you have things to do there, or do you feel you've done all that you've done and this that you've now entered this next phase of chronicling the history and and making sure that part is taken care of as your legacy well uh, you know there is another part to my life that we really haven't discussed because i teach i teach master students so i have i have graduate students and i always have my hands on fabric so i i live vicariously through my talented students yeah UCLA, we have one of the top programs, if not the top program in costume design for film and television in the United States. It's run by you. <laughs> Why wouldn't it be the top? It's I mean, run it's by the, the, most, top. the most incredible designers in residence. So, I mean, we have the, our designer in residence this spring is Deborah Scott, the designer of Avatar. Wow. So I have friends and colleagues come in and students are designing, they're designing operas, they're designing theater, they're designing student films. So I'm teaching. So I, I have to feel that my, I, I, I did work in cinema and 
And as you kindly reminded everyone, it turns out that my work has survived uh, and been acknowledged by, if not, if, if people don't know my name, they really know my, my designs, right? Mm -hmm. And then I had this amazing opportunity to pivot and, and to pivot, to have a second chapter that's so rich and gives back to me and these fabulous students. And I, I have a PhD student who we're doing a, um, she's doing an independent study in curation. And so we were visiting museum curators and curation is another way in which I get to be creative. Yeah, you've done, you've curated a number of museum exhibitions and your own stuff is in museums. So you've worked with curators. Yeah, so I, I mean, I curated the most important, I, I know it is the most important Hollywood, called Hollywood costume, most important museum exhibition of, of film costumes ever. So I have experience in a lot of different areas and I share, I love sharing this with my students and I have the best students ever. So it's important to share. I mean, honestly, how can you keep something alive? It's, it goes back to, it goes back to, uh, to you know, pr almost practically prehistoric times where the only way to keep something alive is to share it. Yes, if it's not passed on, then it dies, right? You know, I, I'm really, I was the beneficiary of so many mentors uh, as a young designer. When, when, when you experience that kind of mentorship and that kind of generosity and that kind of, of faith in, in, in your own talent, in my talent, I had such um, wonderful, wonderful mentors who helped me. And I believe that successful people all have mentors. They can all thank someone. We all have the person to thank at the podium, right? Yeah. There's mom and dad, but there's always that other person too, who helped us up. And I have a legion of them. And and I get tremendous satisfaction from being at school. And and I have a wonderful position. You're paying it back and you're paying it forward. It's both. Yeah. So last question before we part. What does being an innovative thinker mean to you? It, it means the do not accept anything. <laughs> I don't accept anything. I am the worst person to um to invite anywhere because i will always challenge old rules challenge old um precedents um i want to i i want to uh be i, I want to hear your opening argument and then i want to hear your closing argument and i want to be the jury uh, <laughs> do not expect me to accept something that I find uncomfortable. If I could, on my own, create a situation in the movie business where there was profit sharing on every film, and if the movie made a certain amount of money that every member of that crew who made that film a success would benefit mm -hmm. and would able would be able to ease their lives a little bit, right? 
could get a cash bonus. I'm, I'm for it. There is a way to have profit sharing in the movie business. There is a way to have gender parity in the movie business. And, and I just uh, refuse to accept the precedent that keeps us all in place using old models. Yeah. And that's why you're a pioneer in your field, because it's new thinking that that pushed you forward. Uh, that's why you're a leader because someone has to start it. Right. Uh, and, uh, pioneers set the precedent for what is to come. Deborah, thank you so very much for gracing us with your presence, for telling us all your amazing stories, for letting us just take a peek into your, your genius and, oh. and how it works. It <laughs> has been truly a pleasure having you on this podcast, really a treat. Thanks for the opportunity.